Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Healing the Nations podcast, your podcast on end time events, religious liberty, and current event issues. And I have a very special guest here today, Pastor Ingram London. Pastor London, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for uh, having me on. It's a privilege. Now, Pastor London, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you're doing? Uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. So, um, yeah, my name is, is Ingram London. I am a second uh, generation uh, Seventh-day Adventist. I'm originally from Houston, Texas. Um, my education, my, my background is in uh, actually information technology uh, was what my uh, undergrad degree was in. And then uh, later on, after I got married, um, I went to the seminary in, in Berrien Springs at, at our uh, seminary there at, at Andrews University, where I completed my Master's of Divinity in 2013. Um, and I'm currently working on my doctorate uh, at the seminary as well in uh, systematic theology. Can you tell us a little bit about the doctorate you're working on? Yeah, so um, so like I said, I'm doing systematic uh, theology, which uh, is just a fancy word for uh, doctrine and, and how doctrines uh, are, are interrelated. Um, my cognate, uh, which is like a, a secondary discipline uh, or secondary focus, is Adventist studies. So um, I should probably uh, mention that uh, this is actually my second, uh, I guess, admit, admittance or, or matriculation <laughs> through the, the PhD program. So I was originally admitted after I finished my Master's of Divinity, uh, but unfortunately I had to take a, a hiatus from that to uh, care for my parents. And now I'm, I'm back in the program. I had to reapply and, and everything uh, because my sabbatical had expired. Um, so the reason I bring that up is that the first time I uh, was uh, started the, the PhD program at, at Andrews, I, I definitely wanted to do something uh, in regards to the sanctuary in terms of my dissertation and, and my research focus. Um, when I came back to the seminary, um, there was a, a dissertation had already been published through our seminary in the Philippines that was kind of doing the, the uh, type of research that I wanted to publish on and, and actually write my dissertation on. And that was by uh, Roy Graf. Uh, and you can actually pick up his, his work. It's called the, the Principle of Articulation in Adventist Theology. Uh, and that's uh, specifically focusing on, on the sanctuary as like the connecting glue that, that uh, basically connects all of our doctrines uh, together into a cohesive whole. So since someone had already done that work and they, they don't give people PhDs for uh, uh, reinventing the wheel. So I still wanted to do something uh, related to the sanctuary, but now I needed to find an, uh, a unique angle uh, and, and something that was just as, uh, as interesting to me. And so what I decided to do was to start looking into something that I think is extremely relevant for our, our current times and our current uh, situation in terms of our society and our politics, uh, which is uh, black theology. And I can explain a little bit about what that is. But essentially what I'm doing right now is I'm trying to flesh out some of the connections uh, or points of overlap, uh, rather, I should probably uh, phrase that, points of overlap between our Adventist doctrine of the sanctuary and some elements of, of Black theology or, or Black liberation theology. So how is the African-American experience connected to the sanctuary? 
Yeah, that, that's a great question. And so, so that's what I'm trying to, um, to flesh out here. And a very um, just kind of overview type of uh, uh, explanation for that. Um, whenever you study black theology, black theology, and I, I should clarify this. So when I say black theology, what I what I am referring to is the African-American experience, like, like you just uh, said. So I, I'm not referring to uh, black people from all over, I'm not, it, which would be uh, what's called pan-African uh, theology. So the discipline that I'm interested in is black theology, which is specific to the African-American experience. Uh, here in, in the United States. So what's the connection between Black theology and the sanctuary? So let me explain a little bit more about what Black theology is. So Black theology, it's a theology like any other theology. It's the study of God. But since we can't put God in a lab or in a test tube or something like that, we have to study God through his revealed uh, revelation, which is the scriptures. So black theology, just like every other theology, is the study of God via uh, the scriptures, um, the, the revealed uh, will of God. So the unique thing about black theology and why it's called black theology is that it is the study of God via the scriptures with certain questions and certain presuppositions and theological commitments in, in mind. Um, and I can talk about what some of those are, but essentially what black theology does, it tries to address three uh, specific questions or concerns. Uh, number one would be the issue of, of black liberation. So uh, what one thing or one of the primary things that black theology tries to do is is to provide the theological foundation for civil rights uh, activism. The next uh, thing that black theology tries to do is actually address uh, a subset of, of what is known in theology as the problem of, of evil. So the problem of evil, just very briefly, is, is, is this conundrum that uh, we know as Christians, uh, as, as really as theists, as people who believe in, in, in God, that God is all-powerful. Uh, we also uh, attribute to him that, that God is omnibenevolent or, or all-loving. And the problem with the, those two ideas of, of holding them together is that there is the reality of the existence of evil in our experience as, as human beings and as creatures. And so the problem of evil is trying to reconcile this idea. How can God be all loving? How can God be all powerful? And at the same time, why is there evil, uh, especially in the form of horrendous suffering uh, in, in the world? And so that's the problem of evil. And so black theology tries to address a subset of that problem, which is the, the problem of horrendous evil that has come upon the African-American community since uh, 1619, when the first uh, African uh, slaves were brought to these shores uh, on, on down to 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 today. So all of the oppression and horrific suffering that has occurred in the black community uh, since we uh, arrived here. Um, so that's the second thing that that black theology tries to address. And then the third thing that black theology tries to address is something um, uh, that uh, James Cone, who's kind of considered the academic father of black theology, he said that the worst uh, legacy of slavery is the destruction of, of black dignity and black self-worth. And so the third thing that black theology tries to address is, is to give a renewed foundation 
for black self-worth, black self-esteem uh, and black dignity that is rooted in, in scripture and in, and in the personhood of Christ. So that's what black theology is. How it, it relates to the sanctuary is uh, it, it, it actually relates in a, in a multitude of ways. So the sanctuary, if we understand the sanctuary correctly, the sanctuary is, is really a, a hermeneutical key uh, that opens up an entire worldview. And that worldview can really be summarized as the great controversy uh, narrative or the great controversy motif. Uh, some people uh, who especially those outside of Adventism, may call it the, the cosmic conflict uh, motif. But essentially this idea that there is a battle between good and evil, between Christ and Satan, and within that construct of our understanding of reality, there is a, an implicit message in that, which is that God does not always get what he wants. So if it's a, just a basic understanding uh, premise in, in regards to the great controversy, if you're going to accept that worldview, is that God doesn't always get what he wants, even though he is all powerful, even though he is all loving, et cetera, et cetera, all of these divine attributes that God has. So how does the black theology, how does it overlap with, with the sanctuary? Well, in all of those different ways that I just listed, the different concerns that black theology tries to address um, uh, the questions and concerns of the black community, the sanctuary speaks to each of those. So one of those, uh, which I mentioned a, a little bit earlier, the idea of, of giving the foundations or the, the theological foundation for uh, civil rights activism, I believe can actually be found in the investigative judgment. Uh, which is a very uh, dear, uh, you know, and, and special doctrine. In fact, it's probably one of our, our unique uh, contributions to Christian theology as Seventh-day Adventists is, is our conception of, of the investigative judgment. And so that's where the overlap is. And I can talk a little bit more about that, uh, especially in regards to uh, how it connects with Matthew 25. So in other words, in the investigative judgment, the standard is the law of God. And so... The treatment of African-Americans is directly connected to the investigative judgment because an aspect of the law of God, as we as Adventists do not emphasize, is love your neighbor as yourself. Is that correct? That is exactly correct. So here's the thing, and I just was studying this and, and getting into this idea a, a bit more deeply over, over the past couple of weeks now. Um, but I, I believe that, unfortunately, something that we have not emphasized in our articulation of the investigative judgment is that there is a, a very important issue in it that, that is going to be uh, taken into account in the investigative judgment. And if, uh, if you read Ellen White, she actually says that it is the singular point that our eternal destinies will, will be decided on, and that is whether... Uh, how we responded to the cry of suffering and, and the cry of the oppressed and the, and the poor in this world, that our eternal destinies will be determined upon that singular point. Um, uh, and I think, unfortunately, in a lot of, uh, of Adventist circles today, what I just said sounds like uh, communism or socialism. And so a lot of people are dismissing the idea that we need to be involved and at least some sort or some form of what is called social justice today in order for us to even pass the investigative judgment. 
Now, I want to be careful here. I don't want to give the idea that we can earn our salvation through any type of good works. I don't care if it's a Sabbath keeping or, or, or some other commandment. Like there is no way to earn your salvation. It's not possible. But that being said, there is a fundamental misunderstanding of what salvation is and the purpose of salvation if we miss this point about actually looking out for others and loving our neighbors as ourselves. And so uh, maybe I should, at this point, I should uh, direct our our audience to Matthew chapter 25, uh, which highlights this in in a lot of detail for us. So if you go to Matthew chapter 25 and you look at, uh, I believe it's verses 31 through 46, you see this uh, description or depiction of the judgment. And so this is Christ himself telling us how the judgment is going to function and what is at stake in in the judgment and and what the criteria is by by which we will be judged. So in that description of the judgment, uh, Jesus basically says that all the nations will be uh, gathered uh, together, all of the ethnos, uh, the the Greek term there behind nations. So all the ethnicities, all the people uh, in the world will be gathered together. And that, so he depicts this, this cosmic scene where all of humanity arraigned before him as the judge. And then it says that he is going to separate one from another. And he designates two different groups. There's sheep and then there are goats. And the sheep he has on his right hand, which is the place of favor. And then he puts the goats on his left hand, which is the place of disfavor. And then uh, there's this conversation between Christ and the the sheep, the individuals who are placed on on his right hand and who are told that they are going to inherit the the kingdom of heaven. And he tells them that the reason why they are designated as sheep is that they have met uh, the needs of of different uh, individuals. In in actuality, he says, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you, you gave me something to drink. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, uh, you, uh, you visited me. And when I was a stranger, you, you took me in, a uh, stranger or foreigner, you took me in. And so the sheep respond and say, when did we see you in any of these uh, different circumstances and being in need? And Christ uh, actually responds and says, whenever you did one of these acts of mercy to one of the least of these, my brethren, it was the same as if you had done it unto me. And so that is those acts of mercy are the evidence of that is being considered in the investigative judgment. And I think that unfortunately, too many of us have actually missed this point. And so we've been more concerned about other matters, not that those other issues are are important in terms of, of law keeping, but this is equally as important as well. In fact, it will determine our eternal destinies at at the end of the day. I should also mention that when uh, Christ is separating these individuals between the the sheep and and the goats, that when we look at that language, it's very interesting because when when you go to the Gospel of John, we read about the sheep that that Christ has, and and Jesus describes them as the individuals who, who hear and know my voice, right? And so when you go back to Matthew 25 and you look at, okay, those who are saved are designated as sheep and those who are goat are, are lost are designated as goats. The issue here is that the sheep are able to recognize the voice and person of Christ in the suffering and in the oppressed of this world. 
And so the issue here is this, if you can't recognize that voice, if you don't have a great level of empathy for those who are downtrodden in society, those who are oppressed for a various number of reasons, whether it's economic, whether it's racial, et cetera, et cetera, then something has, has gone wrong in your Christian experience because you're actually lacking one of those fundamental elements of discipleship, which is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Now, I'm thinking out loud about the investigative judgment, especially in Daniel chapter 7, where in the investigative judgment, the little horn powers judged in Daniel 7 during the judgment. The little horn power having the guise of Christianity but not treating their neighbor as themselves. And I think of the papacy and its history of, of intolerance of their vassal states of Spain and, and Portugal and even France, uh, enslaving African slaves to bring them to North America. And so I'm seeing here that is there a connection between the systemic treatment of African-Americans through this context and prophecy with what may happen to Adventists in these last days? Yeah, absolutely. So the fundamental question or issue at the root of all of this, it actually goes all the way back to to creation, because at at creation, you have these two institutions that, that humanity brought with it out of the garden, even after the fall. And those two institutions are the Sabbath and and marriage, both of which affirm that we are the children of God and that we are made in God's image. And so the issue here that has been an an issue with uh, uh, social justice and uh, treating each other fairly and with equity has always been about whether we can recognize the image of God in other people even when they don't look like us or they have a different culture or have a different background. And so you have this issue with the papacy or the medieval church. It it really violated the essence of Christianity in trying to force people's consciences. uh, And if people did not comply, uh, then they would either burned at the stake or, or put to death and these types of things. That is a violation of the Imago Dei. It is a violation of the image of God in in another individual to try and take away that person's freedoms, whether they're religious freedoms or whether they are secular freedoms or civil uh, freedoms or civil rights, if you want to call them that. When you do that, you are violating the image of God in that person. And so, yes, we definitely see that in the history of the Christian church. Uh, actually throughout its history since since Constantine, when you had that uh, that combination between church and state coming together uh, in, in the 300s. And so, yes, definitely there, there is a, a connection there. And that tradition of violating the image of God and other human beings by either oppressing them uh, religiously or oppressing them uh, civilly, it continues even today in, in the United States and even in, in so-called Protestant nations, uh, just like the country that we live in today. And we will see a resurgence of this uh, in in the end times if uh, our understanding of Revelation 13 is correct, which I believe it is. Now, race has been a dominating conversation, not only outside the church, but now inside the church. And there have been social media posts that have been flying around from different positions and whatnot. And there are some people within the church that believe that Systemic racism is not in existence. It's fiction that it's a political left conspiracy. How do you respond to that? Yeah, it's unfortunate that we even have to have this discussion. 
Um, that, that's why I, I, I laugh because it's, it's really kind of sad, actually. But before we go there, though, I need to highlight something that, uh, that I neglected to do when we're, when we're talking about Matthew 25 and talking about the investigative judgment that I think directly plays into this, into your question. Sure. For a lot of our, our people, I think we have forgotten the, the actual goal of, of salvation. And so um, it's very important to, to highlight that at, at this point, I think. So th- the goal of salvation, as I understand it, is that we need to return back to our original state. So the goal of salvation is really a work of recreation or restoration. So what was the original state? Um, I can definitely show this from from scripture, but I'm going to cheat here and and use the spirit of prophecy just for the sake of time. Um, I'm referencing uh, the desire of ages, and that is page uh, 21, uh, and that's paragraph two and paragraph three. What we find in in desire of ages, uh, page 21, uh, paragraph two and paragraph three, is that God is, uh, through the prophet Ellen White, is actually giving us a picture or a depiction of how the universe is supposed to function and what are the central principles that make the universe function in a healthy manner. And the way that it works is something that Ellen White coined, she called it the circuit of beneficence. And at the center of this exchange or this circuit is Jesus Christ. And so God the Father is depicted as being the source of all life, and he mediates that life and his blessings and his love through Jesus out to the rest of creation. And then in response, creation is to lavish love and praise upon the Father, again, mediated through Jesus Christ. And another way that creation is to uh, respond to the love of God that's mediated through Christ is actually loving one another. And so every agent in this circuit of beneficence is always engaged in seeking into in how to bless other people and how to show love to other people. Whether it's the creator or a creature, they're always seeking to figure out how to love each other better. How was this disrupted? Well, we all know the story of Lucifer. Lucifer disrupted this circuit of of beneficence, according to to Ellen White, uh, again, on Desire of Ages, page 21. And the way that he disrupted it is by uh, going into what we call uh, self-seeking. And so instead of seeking how to love others, he made it his primary objective in trying to figure out how to love himself and ignore the needs of, of others. And so that's how we got into this this mess that we call the great controversy and this war between Christ and Satan, because Christ was the center of the circuit of beneficence. And instead of Christ being the center, Satan uh, or Lucifer at that point wanted to insert himself in, as the center of the circuit of beneficence. And he wanted love and praise and adoration lavished upon himself instead of lavishing praise and love upon God. So I, I just want to set that that foundation there. Because some people may be wondering, why is the issue in Matthew 25 about loving your neighbor as yourself? It's because that is the original issue that went awry and that that went wrong with Lucifer. And so Lucifer, ever since then, has been trying to convince human beings, creatures of uh, both fallen angels and our, ourselves as human beings, fallen human beings, to not cooperate with the circuit of beneficence and disqualify ourselves from heaven. Uh, because we don't want to cooperate 
with the circuit of beneficence. And instead, we want to be self-seeking and only uh, look after our own interests instead of the interests of others. So your question, again, was about systemic racism and people even inside the church not accepting the reality of systemic racism. So with that foundation in mind in regards to what the goal of salvation is, which is to make us more attuned to the needs of others and the plight of others, then I'll, I'll try to answer that, that question now. So I, I should also mention that there are two types of racism. So you, you mentioned about systemic racism. There is systemic racism, but then there's also individual racism. Most people that I have encountered believe that in the things such as individual racism. Um, they, they believe that it is something that is possible. It is something that has at least has happened in the past. Some people doubt whether it is such a big deal now in our culture today, um, but most people accept this thing as individual or personal acts of, of racism as a reality. But then you have systemic racism. And that is what people sometimes question, whether it is real or not, whether it ever existed and, and whether it exists today. So what is systemic racism? So systemic racism, as the name implies, it deals with systems, it deals with policies. Um, the difference between systemic racism and individual racism is this. Individual racism is, a, is composed of, of these two um, ingredients, you could say cultural and ethnic bias, as well as, in, or in addition to that, you also need to have some type of power and the willingness to harm other people. So when you have a cultural or ethnic bias and you have the power and the willingness to harm uh, other people, when you combine those two together, that's when you have manifestations of personal or individual racism. And just about every African-American that I know can give you examples of when this is, has happened to them where someone who had a cultural bias against them exercised their power or influence in order to harm them, either psychologically, emotionally, or uh, financially, or in some other way, and then sometimes even physically. But then you have systemic racism. And systemic racism is not a situation where someone has to actually make a decision to harm someone. There are, are policies, at, at least in, in this country and in other Western countries, there are policies that have been implemented and enacted that result in racial disparities. Now, sometimes these policies were, were enacted with the motive to hurt uh, minorities, not just black people, but other minorities and to help uh, the white majority. But in, in a lot of times, it's there race may not have even been a, a factor in, in passing that policy, but yet the result of it is racial disparities. And so that's what a systemic racism is. You can see systemic racism in a lot of different arenas. You can see it in healthcare. You can see it in the justice system. You can see it in, uh, in housing, uh, in education, and on down the line. You, you can see racial disparities that cannot be accounted for just by uh, individual behavior. They're just uh, disparities that are inherent to the policies themselves. Um, in regards to what I would say to Adventists who deny the existence of systemic racism, I would just say that those individuals should probably 
take some time to actually get educated on on the issue. People who actually study racism, sociologists, and people who study African-American history or African-American studies, people who have doctorate degrees in, in this issue, in these issues, and then they study these things day in and day out, will tell you that systemic racism is real, that individual and personal racism is real. And so what I would recommend for those individuals is to actually uh, read and study up, acquire books and resources from these types of individuals who actually study racism. And look, I think at least the, the quote is attributed to Aristotle that the mark of an educated person is to entertain a, a thought but not adopt it for yourself. At the end of the day, if you look at these resources and you're still not convinced, okay, no one's going to force your conscience uh, in, in order to accept the, these concepts. But at, at the end of the day, at least expose yourself to the, the ideas and expose yourself to people who are actually reputable in the field who know what they're talking about. So for ex I can give you a, a few examples. So if you want to know about systemic racism in regards to uh, the justice system, I would highly recommend uh, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Um, or you can watch the documentary, I believe it's called uh, 13th, which is available on, on Netflix. I guess you, you could say that was a, that's a Cliff Notes version or a, a juice down uh, version of, of the new Jim Crow. Um, there are other uh, resources available like uh, post-traumatic slave syndrome by Joy DeGry, which there are some very interesting overlaps in her book. Uh, she's she's not an Adventist. She's actually a um, a Baha'i. I, I believe that's the faith that she practices. But she has some interesting ideas that overlap with some things that Ellen White ha has said in regards to the legacy of slavery. That it is not just economic. It's not just uh, a social in regards to the legacy of, of slavery uh, uh, and its effect on African Americans, but actually uh, epigenetics, uh, when we're talking about changes at the level of someone's DNA as a result of, of oppression. Uh, she talks about that, that idea, which is now uh, a reputable field of, of research uh, since people have done uh, experiments on uh, individuals who went through the Holocaust and they have, have seen that people actually do experience changes in their DNA after experiencing a traumatic event. Um, there's also The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. Uh, if you want a very good just general overview of African-American history uh, through the lens of, of how racism has affected African-Americans, I would definitely recommend Stamp from the Beginning by Ibram uh, Kendi. There's another book in, uh, that speaks about police brutality and, and corruption. Uh, it's called Breaking Rank by Norm uh, Stamper, who's a, a longtime police veteran who, who left the force and, and wrote this tell-all uh, book uh, about his experiences. And then I would highly recommend, especially for our white Seventh-day Adventist brothers and sisters in North America, um, uh, please uh, avail yourself of this resource. It's a book called White Fragility. That book is, uh, I think, will be very eye-opening to a lot of, of, of white uh, Seventh-day Adventists. It's written by a white author. Uh, the author's name is Robin D'Angelo, and she explains why it is so difficult for uh, uh, white uh, individuals to accept the, the concept of systemic racism, and she also especially uh, focuses on uh, why it's so difficult to have conversations about race 
as a Caucasian or as a white person. So that would be my first thing is, is to avail yourself of some of these resources. And there are other resources out there uh, to familiarize yourself with before you in, engage in denying systemic racism or, or even personal and individual instances of, of racism. The other thing that I would encourage people to do is to actually trust your African-American brothers and sisters in Christ when they tell you that racism is real and they share their stories with you and, and experiences to actually take their word for it, that they're that they're not making up things, that they're not trying to to dupe you in, into some uh, left wing uh, socialist plot or something like that, that these are actually uh, real uh, instances and real experiences that you're hearing from the African-American uh, community. Probably the last thing I would say in terms of uh, in, in response to people who, who deny systemic racism is to actually do some mental exercises and try to be very honest with yourself. Um, so for example, imagine, try to imagine if it's even possible for you to, to place instead of George Floyd having his body on the ground with uh, an officer's knee on his neck of having maybe three or four black officers with their knee on, on the neck of, of, a, of a white male or something like that. Try and envision these things happening or what happened to Ahmaud Arbery having a two or three uh, black men uh, running down a, a, a white man or, 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 or white woman chasing them down in their in their vehicles and then gunning them down in the streets. And then try and imagine a scenario in which two or three black men were, were to do that, to commit a murder against a white person. And those three black black men are not immediately taken to jail and and uh, and, and charged and prosecuted uh, because we didn't see that in the Ahmad Arbery situation. In fact, it took about a, a month for anyone to be arrested for that, that young man's uh, murder. And so try and switch out the, the characters in, in these situations and see and, and, and really ask the question, would this even happen? Would this be possible in America for white people to be treated the same way that black and brown people are, are treated. Another example would be the Flint water crisis. Could you even imagine seeing a, a middle class or upper class uh, white neighborhood that pays taxes, that they would be essentially betrayed by their local government and have them install inferior water pipes to, to pump in poisoned water into the community that these kids are drinking poison, corrupted water. And now we know that these kids are going to have mental development issues and, and educational problems throughout their lives. And then to imagine that years after the fact, because even today, Flint, Michigan still does not have clean water, years after the fact, to have a middle class or upper class white neighborhood to still be dealing with these issues, it, it's, it's just not uh, fathomable. To us. Another example would be America's response to, to drug use in this country. When the opioid crisis hit, it was talked about as a public health crisis. But what happened in the 90s when we had the crack cocaine epidemic? It, it was criminalized. It wasn't called a, a public health crisis. And yet you need to ask yourself the question, what was the difference? And honestly, the only difference comes down to race in those types of situations. And so that's what I would say to, to individuals who uh, insist that systemic racism is not uh, real. Get educated. Trust your African-American brothers and sisters when they're telling you their experiences. 
and also to do some of these mental exercises of, of switching out uh, the race of, of some of the victims of, of systemic and individual and personalized instances of, of racism and see, would it even make sense in America? Would this be allowed uh, to have uh, white uh, individuals suffer the same fate as uh, their black and brown counterparts? Now, can you share your experience with racism, piggybacking on the previous response? I don't want to go into a whole lot of details. I will just say that I, I'm a black man and I grew up in the deep south. I'm from Texas. I've been called the N-word uh, more times than I care to remember <laughs> from, from, from white people. Um, I've had rocks thrown at me. I have been pulled over unnecessarily. In fact, it's, it's quite interesting. Whenever my brother and I go on a long road trips, whether we rent a car or we're driving a vehicle that we own, it's almost uncanny. We will get stopped. We will get pulled over. Sometimes I've been asked to step out of the vehicle. And, and you can imagine my, my heart is racing during, during those types of situations because quite literally, I'm afraid that I might lose my life in, in, in one of these situations, one of these interactions with a, a law enforcement officer. Um, probably the most salient uh, example of, of, of personal uh, racism that I've experienced was uh, in Arizona, where an individual actually threatened my life and called me the N-word and, and uh, shouted uh, all types of profanities at me. Uh, and I, to this day, I still am not sure why he singled me out to, <laughs> to, to treat me that way. So yes, you, you have personal racism, examples of that in my own life, but also I've experienced racism in, inside the church. I've had conversations with, with white Adventists who have said uh, terrible things a, a about their black brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, making claims that, that we are not uh, fully uh, committed to Protestantism, that we, we're not interested in, uh, in mission work and, 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 and we're, we're too selfish and all we do is, is seek after power. Uh, in the church and, and these types of things. I've, I've heard white Adventists denigrate our, our worship and worship styles as being uh, Pentecostalized beyond recognition and that we, we need to get back to uh, true uh, Adventism, which I interpret as European uh, <laughs> and, and uh, Western uh, white American um, methods of, of worship. I've heard some very unsettling interpretations of, of Ellen White's writings in regards to race. Uh, so, yes, there, I have experienced racism in, inside and, and outside uh, the, the church. Uh, thankfully, uh, just because of the, the, the blessings of, of God, I, I, I believe I've been insulated from a lot of, of what you would call systemic racism. Uh, just because of uh, my parents had uh, opportunities to to go to college. Both of them were educators and, and both of them strongly encouraged uh, me and my brother to uh, pursue our, our education. Uh, my brother has a doctorate in history. I'm, I'm pursuing a doctorate now. Um, and so I, I have been insulated from, I, I think, a lot of examples of systemic racism. But as I said, every African-American uh, that I know has has encountered racism in one way or another, <laughs> whether it was systemic or, or personal uh, uh, incidents of, of racism. I just want to add one thing. I just I, I rarely comment with my guests, but I want to add this one thing you mentioned about some of the white brethren saying that African-Americans are not engaged in mission work. Well, yeah. <laughs> if you travel to South Korea, 
there is a significant portion of African-Americans serving as missionary English teachers in South Korea. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I know a, a, a young lady, she actually was studying uh, art and wanted to be a cartoonist. And she decided to put that on hold. Uh, I believe she had started classes. I think she was one year into her degree, put that on hold and said, nope, I'm going to uh, South Korea and I, I want to serve as a missionary. So, so yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a misnomer. It's, it's a stereotype that is unfortunately uh, prevalent uh, amongst uh, white Seventh-day Adventists in, in their opinions about African-Americans, that we are not interested in missions and that our, our worship styles are, are uh, denigrating in, in some manner. So very unfortunate. Yeah, I just want to add, I saw with my own eyes too, this is not like an abstract statistic <laughs> when I travel right. there. And I appreciate people going out of their comfort zones to go to another culture to do mission work and African-Americans have contributed greatly to the evangelism of South Korea. I just want to add that to Thank our you. listeners. I, yeah, I appreciate you uh, vouching for, for our community. So, so thank you. <laughs> now um, you mentioned racism in the seventh Adventist church. Can you talk more about this as an issue that's we're grappling with here today? Yeah. Um, and and I, I must say my my views are um, a little bit different, I would say, than uh, a lot of my, my brothers and sisters in, in the church uh, in regards to this issue. But uh, one of the number one ways that we know that racism has existed in the Seventh-day Adventist church is that we actually have uh, a conference or our, our, our uh, administration is structured in such a way, at least here in North America, where we have predominantly black uh, regional conferences uh, alongside predominantly white uh, state conferences. And so that whole div division between the, the two conferences, uh, predominantly white and predominantly black conferences, that that in itself was a result of, of racism. Um, I'm sure uh, your viewers are familiar with the story of, of Lucy Byard, so I won't go into a lot of details, but uh, Lucy Byard was a, an African-American Seventh-day Adventist from, from New York, and I believe it was in uh, 1943 she had uh, contracted uh, liver cancer, wanted to be treated at an Adventist hospital that uh, a portion of her tithe dollars went went towards constructing. And so she went to uh, Washington Adventist Sanitarium in D.C. and was denied service at that hospital because she was an African-American and told to go to the black hospital, the Freedmen's Hospital in uh, in Washington, D.C. And as a at least this is how it is interpreted, that as a result of her being turned away from being treated, at our own hospital that she actually contracted pneumonia en route to uh, the, the Freedmen's Hospital and later died at the Freedmen's Hospital. Now, when African-Americans, Seventh-day Adventists heard about her death, I mean, the, our community was enraged and demanded that the General Conference immediately uh, implement full integration of all of our institutions, our hospitals, our schools, um, our, our hygienic restaurants, everything. And instead, the white brethren at the top, they, instead of, uh, of fully integrating our institutions, they decided to uh, continue to preserve a, a system of segregation 
uh, but they allowed the, the African-American constituency to form their own regional conferences. So that's, that's why we have separate conferences uh, today. They were actually a, a result uh, of racism. But I do want to uh, say one thing. Um, I, I, I hope no one misinterprets me. I am not uh, against the existence of the regional conferences today. In fact, I believe that we need regional conferences today more than, than ever. Um, because regional conferences, they actually, in, in a way, in a very real way, they serve as the conscience and the prophetic voice of Seventh-day Adventism today in terms of, of uh, me meeting the needs of people uh, in regards to oppression and, and suffering in, in our communities. And so I, I would definitely uh, not be in favor of dissolving regional conferences or merging the conferences at this time. Uh, unless there is the necessary work of really uh, heartfelt repentance and, and there needs to be a critical mass of, of repentance of, of racism uh, within the Seventh-day Adventist Church before we even talk about uh, dismantling regional conferences or emerging conferences. Um, the, the truth of the matter is there is still a lot of racism within the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And you can see it on, on Facebook, you can see it on other social media platforms, the things that I have seen my white uh, Seventh-day Adventist brothers and sisters uh, share on, on Facebook and other platforms is just deeply disturbing and hurtful uh, to me. And I know, at least personally, whenever I have shared anything in regards to uh, a race or race matters, either about race issues in the world or race issues within the church. I have been told by my white uh, brethren that I am in league with the devil and I'm being used as a tool of Satan to stoke division uh, within the church. And so uh, there's definitely uh, uh, an element of, of racism still uh, within the Seventh-day Adventist church for sure. Uh, here's the irony that I'm struggling to grasp right now. I look at the Seventh-day Adventist church and the majority are minority people of color mm -hmm. in, in the United States and the world. Mm -hmm. And Seventh-day Adventists that are people of color are, in my eye test, in my observation, are tend to be more theologically conservative, tend to adhere more to our doctrines, be it culturally or be it just organically. And it just astounds me that we have such lack of empathy for different people being that we're such a diverse church. How can we address that? Well, it, it, it goes, there, there's a problem, at least that I have become more aware of in the past few years as I've uh, conversed with, with different uh, white Seventh-day Adventists within the church who have uh, felt uh, comfortable enough with, with just sharing their candid views uh, with me. Um, and that is that there is a contingent of, of Adventists, uh, white Seventh-day Adventists in, in, in North America who are very afraid and actually do not like the fact that the majority of Seventh-day Adventists in, in the United States are, are people of color, whether they be black, brown or, or otherwise. That actually upsets them. And as they see the influx of even more black and brown immigrants into this country and they see uh, the white population of Adventists decreasing, they have turned, unfortunately, to a, a I would say, a very unbiblical and even a, a satanic uh, approach to uh, <laughs> to evangelism 
uh, or at least they, they think that it's evangelism. And what I mean is this, there are certain elements within the church who believe that if we were to somehow be able to muzzle Black Seventh-day Adventist ministers and Hispanic Seventh-day Adventist ministers who are, are preaching uh, against oppression and are taking up social justice causes and things of that nature, that if we could just silence those individuals, that somehow it would make the church more attractive to rural, uh, politically right-leaning uh, white uh, um, Americans and, and make the church more attractive to them so that we can replenish the numbers uh, of white Seventh-day Adventists in the church. And so what I think a lot of this uh, racism uh, that at least I have seen in the church, where I think it's coming from, and quite frankly, it shouldn't surprise me because I think a lot of the racism, at least personal incidents of racism that we see out in the world today, they actually do not come from a place of, of hate. They come from a place of, of fear. And so people are afraid that white Adventism will one day die and that it will only be people uh, of color uh, or, or at least predominantly people of color that are, are Seventh-day Adventists in, in, in North America. And so because of that fear, people are, are, are now unfortunately selling their, their prophetic heritage. They're selling the, the truth of, of the gospel that we are all one in Christ and instead are adopting uh, right-wing evangelical perceptions of their world and really giving in to this fear that, that somehow Adventism will die if it is taken over in, in terms of numbers by black and brown people. And this phenomenon is, um, of diversity is worldwide. I look at uh, the UK. I have pastoral friends in the UK. The majority are former Caribbean colonies that make up the Seventh yep. Adventist membership in the UK. I look at uh, France, the majority yep. are Haitian or uh, former French colonies from Africa or Filipino. And so yep. this phenomenon is worldwide. And I think it's beautiful because our mandate in the first angel's message is every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And I think it shows that God is moving. And I just appeal to the white brethren that feel that way that we are doing the work right now to finish the work by having a diverse church. Absolutely, absolutely. And, th and this is the thing that really disturbs me about this approach of trying to, to stop the, the growth of minorities <laughs> in the church and stop minorities from engaging in, in social justice uh, uh, issues uh, in, in order to make the church more palatable to, to rural and, and, and middle-class white Americans. The problem with that approach is that it, it's passive. As Seventh-day Adventists, we are never to be passive when it comes to evangelism. If you see a lack or a need or a disparity when it comes to the representation of, of white people in, in the Seventh-day Adventist church here in North America, that should not cause you to want to oppress or, or stamp down other minority groups. It should actually inspire you to actually go out and, and do the work, go door to door, uh, take literature to people, plant churches. Do that type of work, because that's the only way that you're going to grow the numbers of, of white Seventh-day Adventists in, in North America. It is not going to be by actually criticizing and, and turning against your, your brothers and sisters and the work that they're doing in, in, the, in communities of color. So uh, final question, what are some practical things that we as a church, as members, can do to combat racism inside and outside the Seventh-day Adventist Church? 
Sure. Um, well, th th that's a very complicated question. Uh, and, and I'll tell you why, because it, it's very difficult to speak to the racism outside the, the church if you still harbor racism within your own heart, it, within the church. Right. So I, I would say we, we have to start first with a work of introspection, <laughs> long seasons of, of prayer and, and asking God to actually reveal to yourself where you have fear, where you may have hatred, where you may have uh, cultural and ethnic bias against uh, non-white uh, people, and I'm speaking specifically to my Caucasian brothers and sisters at, at this point. So definitely go into your prayer closet and ask God to show you where you may have imbibed some of the, the culture that is prevalent and on the ascendancy in our country today, which is to have a, a bias and a fear of people of color and try and, and seek out God's perspective on your own heart instead of trying to diagnose uh, yourself without being informed uh, by the Holy Spirit. Um, the next thing I would say is, uh, again, get educated on, on the issues and start with the, the issue of racism even within the church. So get educated by getting a hold of some resources. I would definitely recommend Protest and, and Progress by, by Calvin Rock. I would definitely uh, recommend Seventh-day Adventists and the Civil Rights uh, Movement by Samuel London, uh, my, my older brother. And I would also recommend uh, the book Southern Work, which is a compilation uh, of some uh, letters and, and manuscripts from Ellen White uh, in regards to race relations uh, within the church and, and uh, the plight of African-Americans in the South during the, the 1800s. So that's where I would uh, initially start from there. I would say specifically to, to pastors, make sure you get educated on issues of race and cultural sensitivity and, and actually preach against racism in your churches and let your members know where you stand in regards to, to racism. Uh, be open to inviting uh, regional pastors to come and preach at, at your church and, and share uh, the, our message in, in light of our, our four pillar doctrines, the state of the dead, uh, the sanctuary, uh, the, the law of, of God and the three angels messages and actually share those doctrines from an African-American lens. And you would be amazed how it, it, it makes our, our, our message come alive again. There's so much work and research being done right now, for example, um, and, and recovering things that we used to know, but we don't actually teach anymore. Like, for example, that the one of the identifying marks of, of the uh, lamb-like beast in Revelation 13 is that it would be a nation that uh, engaged in slavery. And that's one of the ways that we are able to actually identify one of the key players in, in our eschatology. So some of these things need to be uh, revived in our, in our uh, Adventist ethos, in our Adventist uh, collective consciousness. It needs to be revived and promoted from the pulpit. Uh, another thing that I would say would be very important uh, in, in terms of a, a show of solidarity with the with your black Adventist brothers and sisters is to see more state conference churches actually join in protest with black churches that are marching and protesting in regards to civil rights. Don't be afraid to actually uh, make your, your voices heard and stand in solidarity uh, with, with your African-American brothers and, and sisters in, in the streets. And I'm definitely not uh, condoning 
uh, rioting or looting or anything that uh, of a violent nature, but definitely peaceful protest uh, that you can be uh, uh, sure that uh, Black Seventh-day Adventists are, are leading the way in, in peaceful protest. So please join with Black Seventh-day Adventist churches and march and protest with them. Um, in, in terms of other uh, practical things, one notion that, that really needs to, to, we need to get rid of in the Seventh-day Adventist church is, is the, um, the, the foolish pursuit of colorblindness. Um, if, if your uh, listeners, if our listeners aren't familiar with that term, colorblindness is the idea that the way to solve racism is not to acknowledge race. So when you see for example, uh, George Floyd having his life choked out of him on, on the street uh, to not see race a, as a part of, of that that scenario, as a part of that uh, instance, that experience that, that we all saw on, on our tablets and on our televisions and, and whatnot. Colorblindness is not the goal. African-Americans, Hispanics, people of Asian descent, we are not asking white people to not see who we are, to see us as black men and women, as Hispanic men and women, as Asian men and women. That's not what we're asking uh, white people for. What we're asking uh, white people to do is to see us as human beings, regardless of our skin color. And so I would definitely ask uh, my white uh, brothers and sisters in the church, because uh, so many of them have, have told me that they don't see color, that they don't see me as a black man and, and these types of things, thinking that they are ingratiating themselves to me. I would highly recommend that you please discard that concept of, of color blindness and really ask yourself the question, why do you need to deny what you see in front of your eyes, my blackness? Why do you need to deny my blackness in order to see me as a human being? Why do you need to deny uh, my Hispanic brothers and sisters uh, their Hispanicness in order to see them as human beings and to treat them as they are as, and made in the image of God? So definitely dispel that, get rid of that ideology, and in instead embrace the diversity of colors that you see in, in the human family and, and celebrate those differences. In terms of other practical things on the theological front, I think that we as Seventh-day Adventists need to do a lot of work in regards to looking at Black theology and Black liberation theology and uh, uh, liberation theology in general. Now, I, I have to be careful here uh, because there are some incompatibilities between uh, liberation theology and black theology and Adventist theology. Those incompatibilities, though, are in methodology. It is not in their theological conclusions. So the conclusions of liberation theology, the conclusions of black theology is that all people are made in the image of God and are deserving of dignity and equality and civil rights and things of that nature. And so if we're going to uh, progress in terms of our uh, understanding of race and race relations within the church, we need to uh, borrow and adopt some of the ideas that are in black theology and that are within liberation theology and check them for compatibility with those four pillar doctrines that I enumerated earlier. And if they pass that check, then we need to adopt them and incorporate them into our theology and make them prominent within our, our theology. So we need an Adventist black theology. We need an Adventist liberation theology that is a thoroughly Adventist and faithful to the scriptures and to the historical grammatical approach uh, to exegesis, 
but at the same time takes into account the plight of the oppressed and the suffering in this world and actually moves people to do something uh, about it. Um, the last thing that I would suggest that we need in, in the church uh, today in terms of combating racism, we need to take racist infractions seriously within the church. I think we need to apply this with grace, but we also need to take it seriously when someone does or says something racist and hurts a brother or a sister in Christ by their racism and is unwilling to repent. We need to be willing to discipline those members just like we discipline people for other spiritual and moral infractions like drinking and smoking and drug use and all and uh, in marital infidelity and fornication. We seem to have no problem with disciplining people in regards to those sins. But when it comes to racism, all of a sudden it becomes a political matter and we don't want to deal with that with that issue. And we don't see racism for what it is, which is really a moral issue. It's a theological issue in which we're denying the image of God and other human beings. Um, in order to help with that, I think we need a Sabbath school quarterly, uh, at least one, one quarter uh, <laughs> uh, very soon on the issue of, of race that would hopefully incorporate some of those principles and ideas from black theology and liberation theology that are uh, actually compatible uh, with Adventism. So that's what I would say are some practical things that the church can do to uh, address racism. And I'm sorry, one more uh, final point I would uh, add, and that is we need a clear and direct statements from the General Conference and, and from the NAD and, and union leaders all the way down. And, you know, it was interesting to me, um, I, I don't want to uh, uh, hurt anyone's feelings, but there was one Seventh-day Adventist college on the West Coast that put out a statement, a beautiful statement, condemning systemic racism, condemning uh, uh, racism, uh, individual and personal instances of, of racism, uh, it, it had a language of repentance. It had language of how to move forward in regards to racism. And, and that school has been castigated and demonized within Adventism as being halfway in apostasy because of some of the issues that they have had. And I, I don't want to make light of those issues. There are some serious issues there. But at the same time, I was sad to see that it was that school and not one of our conference presidents to make such a clear and powerful statement condemning racism within the church and also within the world. And so what I would like to see is, is much clearer condemnations of racism and systemic racism from our leaders to set the tone for the church and to let everyone in the church know that this is something that we're not going to stand for anymore, that we are going to allow Christ to excise this cancer of racism from our souls and that we are also going to consult Christ and allow Christ to lead us in this, uh, the, the stand against uh, oppression, just like the church did in regards to, to slavery uh, at its beginning, that we are, will continue to do this work of standing against oppression uh, of, of brown and black people in the United States. Pastor London, thank you so much for your valuable time in this podcast episode. I certainly learned a lot as I'm processing what we are struggling as a church. And um, we thank you for blessing us with your presence. And we hope that you come back again in the future. And uh, before we close, can you have a closing word of prayer for us? 
Absolutely. And, and thank you for, for having me on. Let's, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your blessings. We thank you for the opportunity to discuss and, and to converse about uh, different issues that are affecting the church and also the world. Lord, we just ask that you would bring a, a spirit of repentance uh, to our hearts, that you would root out racism from within um, our community, and that we would be the head and not the tail in regards to standing up for the oppressed and for those who suffer in this world. Lord, we know the final solution is the second coming, and we look forward to the second coming. But Lord, we also want to be faithful to your command to occupy till you come. And so we just ask that you would help us to be busy uh, uh, about your business and standing in the gap for the voiceless, for the oppressed, for those who have no standing in society and cannot defend themselves. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would strengthen us, use us as instruments to expand your kingdom in this world and to fight against the powers of darkness and with all the tools that you have given us, Lord, with the gospel, with the three angels' messages and, and with the health message and all the tools that you have given us, Lord. Help us to share the light that you have bestowed upon us and not keep it to ourselves, but to be a light to the world. We ask these things in your son's name, Christ Jesus. Amen.